The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. It, I, a couple of minutes just to you adjust to English being spoken properly. Um, I, I, realize, uh, I realize you may struggle with that. Uh, we became citizens this past week, and part of the... Part of the You're welcome. Um, <laughs> part of the process is you have to sit an English exam, believe it or not. And uh, my wife and I were a bit concerned whether we passed the English exam uh, because we weren't quite sure that they would understand it. Uh, <laughs> but in fact, we did pass uh, and got in. Uh, I'm glad to say all of that just to get you adjusted to the accent and uh, to the purity of the accent, obviously. And, and it's much superior, the Scottish accent is much superior to that other accent that belongs to the people in the peninsula just below Scotland. Uh, we don't talk about them very often, we try to ignore them. We would like them to be towed out into the middle of the Atlantic and buried. Uh, and it's, it's great to be in a country that actually resisted them and got rid of them once and for all. <clears throat> Anyway, I want, to, I, want to, I want to, now you've got used to the accent. Uh, I want to read from John chapter 13 this morning, uh, a familiar passage, uh, and uh, try and unpick what this passage is about uh, with you. I'm going to read it quite fast because I don't have a lot of time and I like to take up the time I have. So here we go. Let's dive in. Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world, to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing now you do not understand, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who's bathed or bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that is why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet, and put on his outer garments, he resumed his place and said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. Now, I wonder if you think you know what this passage is about it seems 
clear right there at the end that we should serve one another in whatever way we need, wherever there's a need, and we can meet that need in terms of each other within the body of Christ, that we should serve one another. We should serve one another in love. That's a theme you find right through the New Testament in our relationship with one another. But, the, but there's a contradiction. I wonder if you notice this contradiction in what is said in this passage. For example, Jesus says to Peter, after he's washed him, what I'm doing you don't understand, but afterwards you will understand. And then a little bit later he says to them, do you understand what I have done to you? In other words, right at the heart of the story, there's a little bit of a contradiction. There's something that they will not understand until afterwards. But there is something they can understand right away. There's something that Jesus is doing that is exclusive to Jesus. So when Peter wants to tell Jesus, hose me down, Lord, Jesus says, that's not the way it works. But there's also something that we can grasp and we can do as we follow Jesus. We can serve one another in love. So, how do we resolve this? And what is this story really about? That's what I want to, I want to focus in on. And to understand what it's about, I want us to, ha- to follow the words as they teach us, first of all, what Jesus knew, then what Jesus did, and then what Jesus said. That seems to be the way that that the story unfolds. In those first three verses, we're told this. In verse 1, Jesus knew that His hour had come. Verse 3, Jesus knowing that He had come from the Father and was going back to God. Jesus, having loved His own who were in the world, showed them the full extent of His love. In other words, we're introduced right at the very beginning to what's on Jesus' mind. Now, why is that important? Because very often what people do is a reflection of what is on their mind. So, before we look at what Jesus does, we have to know what He is thinking. And it's quite clear what He's thinking. If you read it, look at that verse again. It was the feast of the Passover. This is the Passover that's been in the background of John's gospel right throughout the story, from the very beginning, when John the Baptist identifies Jesus, you remember, twice in chapter 1, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The whole story has been building up to this Passover. This is the final Passover where Jesus will celebrate with His disciples and then go to the cross as the Lamb of God. His hour had come. That's what we're told. He knew that His hour had come. This is the God moment. This is the moment in the great plan of God. Earlier on to His mother, chapter 2, He says to her, when she comes and says, could you convert all this water into Chateauneuf de Pape, aged uh, about a hundred years? And He says to her, this is not the time it is not yet my time. And he pushes back on that. He does it for her, but he pushes back on that. He makes the best wine that's ever been tasted, but he has underlined to her, this is not the moment that I've come into the world for. This is not my big moment. Turning water into wine is small cheese compared to what I've come to do. 
There's a background to this phrase, his hour had come, in chapter 12. It's always helpful if you read the whole Bible and you read the bits before the bits that you're going. In verse 20 of chapter 12, some Greeks came looking to see Jesus. And Jesus replies to them, when when these people come asking Philip, we've come to see Jesus, Jesus replies to His disciples, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So He knows this. This is a turning point in the entire book. The hour has come. He then spells out what the hour that's come is all about. He uses the image of the grain of wheat, and He says, when a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, then it produces fruit. And He's talking about His his death. He's talking about the fact that this is what the hour means. It means that He will fall into the ground dead, and that He will emerge from the ground, as it were, from the grave, and will produce fruit. And the fruit will include people like these Gentiles, these Greeks who've come looking for Him. Jews and Gentiles from the whole world will be the fruit of His death and His resurrection again. And he had come to glorify God by his death. And so, as you read the story there in chapter 12, you hear God speaking to him. You hear God saying to him in response, I've glorified my name and I will glorify it again. You know, it's very likely that Jesus, in his human nature, because he was without sin, regularly enjoyed what's known as the beatific vision, a vision of God in his splendor and glory and that what these people with him on this occasion were enabled to overhear is the relationship and interaction that had been going on with Jesus in his human nature with his Father in heaven. The Father says to him, and people overhear it, I have glorified my name, and I will glorify it again. Now listen to him again. What is the next thing we're told? What does he know? He knew that he had come from God and was returning to God. He was God from God. He had come from God as God, as the Son comes from a Father. This one, the Son, we're told in chapter 1, was eternally the Son of the Father without a beginning, born without a birth, without a birth in, in the sense of a human birth, born without a beginning, sharing the nature and the status and the glory and the being of God Himself. And that's what we've been told again in chapter 12. In verse 36, there are two quotations from the book of Isaiah. And by the way, the book of Isaiah now governs the way in which we understand chapter 13. Those two quotations where we're told, Isaiah saw God's glory. You know the story of Isaiah goes into the temple one day. He sees the temple full of the glory of God. He can't get into the temple because of God filling the temple with His glory. The temple was a kind of minuscule replica of the entire universe. He's meant to understand that the whole universe is filled with the glory of God. And Isaiah says he heard the seraphim. And what were the seraphim singing? They were singing, holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is full of your glory. Now, Isaiah said these things, and we're told in chapter 12, with these quotations from Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah said these things 
because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of Him. If you'd asked Isaiah, Isaiah, could you come to the microphone for a minute and tell us what you saw when you went into the temple this morning? He would have said to you, I saw the glory and majesty of the God of Israel. And what did you hear? I heard the seraphim. The seraphim band were playing and singing all about the holy, holy, holy God, the whole earth being full of His glory. The God of Israel fills the earth, the universe, with His glory. Well, Isaiah, just wait a minute. John, would you come here? What did, what did, what did Isaiah see? Isaiah saw Jesus' glory and spoke of Him. What Isaiah saw was the Holy Trinity, one God in the majesty and the glory of His being. Now, what did Jesus know? That He had come from God and was returning to God. Now, that's what Jesus knew. We come now to look at what Jesus did because what Jesus did reflected what's on His mind. Follow the words. When Jesus knew, having loved His own during supper, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands, knowing that He had come from God and was going back to God, He rose from supper. What He's doing is giving you an oversight into what it means to, for Him to have come from God and, being go, and going back to God. He rose from supper, verses 1 to 3, and at the end of it, He resumed His place. He had come from God and was going back to God. Now, this is the story of John's gospel, of course. Right at the very beginning, He is with God in the beginning. We saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten Son of God. But what does He do? He becomes flesh. And here in this, in this enacted parable, Jesus is speaking as a prophet here. He is giving a prophetic illustration, as it were. And it says this, that He arose from supper, He laid aside His outer garments, and He took a towel, the badge of the servant, and he poured the water into a basin, the action of a servant. Now, how does the book of Isaiah help us to understand this action of Jesus? The book of Isaiah is the very book that teaches us that the Lord of glory, the God who's coming, the God whose presence and coming Israel is to expect, will come in the form of a servant. So, we're watching the servant of the Lord of Isaiah's book doing a servant-like thing. He is coming, and He is pouring something out on our behalf. What is He pouring out? The servant of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 53 pours out his soul to death. Despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, he pours out his soul to death in order that He might cleanse us, wash us. The language of uh, Hebrews chapter 1, when He had made purification for our sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God. Having come from God, He returned 
to God, having become the servant. In the language of the Apostle Paul in Philippians there, he who was by very nature God, humbled himself, took on the form of a servant, was found in fashion as a man, and humbled himself to death, even the death of the cross. Jesus is enacting the scope of His saving career. Now, follow the, follow the words. What does Jesus say? Well, what Jesus says, He says in response to Simon's uh, impetuous response to this action of Jesus, Peter said to Him, Lord, You mine. Those are, this is what He's saying, what? You mine? Get off this, Lord. You, you who are the Lord, are not going to wash my feet. Listen to what Jesus says to him. If I don't wash you, you have no fellowship with me, no communion with me, no share in me, no part with me. He's talking about more than simply washing the dirt off their sandaled feet, because they didn't wear socks with their sandals in those days. They were far more culturally uh, and sophisticated as ever to wear socks with sandals. And if you wear socks with sandals, shame on you. What a cultural… <laughs> that was free, by the way. That was just for, for your ears only. Don't tell professors I said that. Anyway, but if you do wear socks with sandals, I will tell on you <laughs> and do something serious to you. Anyway, they, so they were, they were there with the, just the sandals, Jesus washing their feet, taking the dirt, the dust off their feet, which is a very good thing to do, and usually that was done by the, the lowest servant of all, preferably a, a servant who was not a Jew, who, who was working it for the household. Jesus takes that part, but, but he, he cranks up what this involves. If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. John Calvin says you, he will miss out on the principal part of salvation. Jesus is claiming to Peter that he and he alone has the exclusive rights to wash his church, to wash his people to bring them into fellowship with God as children of God. So, what is this washing? Listen to Titus. Titus uses the very language that Jesus uses here when Jesus explains to Peter, and He says to Peter this, look, you had a bath this morning before you left. You walked through the streets, your feet got dirty, you just need your feet washed because you've had the bath. Though not all of you have had the bath, Again, he's not talking about getting bathed or having being showered or hosed down or anything else. He's not talking about what they see physically here at this moment. He's talking about something else, isn't it? Something that brings a person into a relationship with him. He says to them, to Peter, if you've had the bath, then you don't need anything but your feet washed. You're in a relationship with me. But not all of you have had the bath. He was talking about who? Judas. Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot was not one of his people. Judas Iscariot was an unbeliever. He was a betrayer. Listen to what it says in Titus 3. 
when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us by the washing, the word there is the same word for the bath here, by the bath of the new birth and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He, get this, poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What had Jesus told Nicodemus? He had said to Nick back there in chapter 3, you need to be born of water and the Spirit. The Holy Spirit washes you, washes you down, cleanses you, removes your guilt, and then puts you in a right relationship with God. Jesus also, by the way, teaches, teaches them that there are two levels to this washing. There's the bath and there's the foot washing. There's the initial bath of the new birth that puts you in a right relationship with God. You only need that once, once and for all. But day by day, as you walk your way through life, your feet get dirty. Today's sins, the dirt of today, you can have that washed away by Jesus too. That's why He distinguishes between His disciples, those who know Him, and Judas Iscariot, who doesn't know Him at all. Believers are fundamentally clean because of the bath of the new birth. Jesus has washed them. But believers can also come to Him day by day, confess today's sins, and be pardoned and purified from today's sins. In other words, Jesus was doing something and saying something that was deeply mysterious to the disciples. They would not understand it until the resurrection. This has come up already in John's gospel when, when Jesus is talking about the, the rivers of living water back in chapter 7 that are going to pour out from, from the temple, out from Him, and, and sweep uh, uh, His people up in the in the ongoing purposes of Jesus and in the cleansing ministry of Jesus. It says there, the disciples did not know He was talking about then, but He was talking about the Spirit which those who would believe in Him would receive. You don't understand this now. And having done this to them, having demonstrated why He'd come into the world, He'd come into the world for His own, he showed them the full extent of His love. He'd humbled Himself to take on the form of a servant, to pour out His life to death in order that they might be forgiven, cleansed, and brought into a right relationship with God. Then He goes and He sits down, and He says to them, what's just happened to you is exclusively my role and my responsibility. Only I can do what I've just done to you, demonstrate to you the love of God that He has for you in sending me into the world for your salvation. But there is something you can do. You can let me wash you. You can receive my salvation. Jesus says to them, what I've done to you, what I've done for you, now readies you to do something that I'm going to ask you to do for one another. Because you've been washed by me, because you've been brought into relationship and fellowship with God by me, you can now turn round to one another 
and do whatever is necessary for each other to minister to their need. This was a need you had today. Your feet were dirty. I, I met your need. And you and I today in our interactions with people on campus and beyond are going to bump into people and there's going to be something we can do for them. And we're to do that in Jesus' name and for His glory, whatever, however mild, meek, minimal it may appear to be. However obnoxious it might appear, I don't, frankly would hesitate to wash some of your feet. Uh, nothing against you. I don't know you, most of you. But just looking at you, that's <laughs> enough. The lights are on me and I can't make your faces out. So anyway, but, uh, but seriously, because we've been washed by Jesus, we can serve one another. Jesus says to us, let me serve you with salvation and then serve one another in love. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the way in which our Lord Jesus gets our attention in this great prophetic action. And in getting our attention, brings our focus to the mystery of who He is. Isaiah's vision, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and His train filled the temple. Isaiah spoke of Jesus when he saw His glory. Thank You that Jesus came into the world to be our Savior. And thank You that by being part of His family, we can now minister to our brothers and sisters in Jesus' name. Go with us into the day, we pray, in Jesus' strong name. Amen.